0: Our Father, we thank you that you love us, we thank you that um, you save us, Lord, we ask that your Spirit uh, would teach us the depths of God this morning, Lord, we know that you are the one that, that is the great discipler, and that you are the one that, that teaches us all of your things, and so Lord, we ask that your Spirit would guide us, and that your Spirit would teach us, we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Alright, so we're going to continue on our series in the book of John this morning, and we're going to get to chapter... For today. So if you have your Bibles, you can open to chapter 4, verses 43 through five-fifteen. And what we find in this text is actually two stories um, that John uses to reveal um, that Jesus is the King, that Jesus is the Messiah, that He's the one worth putting our trust in, and that He's the one worth worshiping. And he, he does it by, by lumping together two stories of Jesus' healings. And so I want to pick up reading... In uh, chapter 4, verses 43 and on, and we'll just kind of work through it together. Um, So, verse 43. After two days he departed from Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So remember that last week we saw the play and they were Jesus was in Samaria. He doesn't just pass through there, but he stays there for two days caring for people. He stays there breaking down racial barriers and social barriers. And if we looked in verse 42, it appears that the whole town of Sychar um, was turning towards Jesus as the Messiah, as the Savior of the world. And so he stays there. Um, for a couple of days. And what's important. Um, I want to read that verse for you. The, the important here is that the focus of the people there in that town. In that area. Wasn't on Jesus' miracles. But it's on Jesus' word. It says this in verse 42. We have heard for... We've heard him for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. So these people that were in Samaria, they're not sign seekers. They heard the message that Jesus was was talking about himself, and they believed. And so Jesus stays there in Samaria for a couple days, and now he's leaving. He's heading to Galilee, the region where he's from. And so he's going to head to to this area of Galilee, which is about 10 miles north of Nazareth, where he was born, or not born, but where, where he lived most of his life which was in Cana, and then that's where he turned the water into wine, if you remember that in chapter 2. And about 15 miles east of that um, is Capernaum, which is where we're going to see the official son who comes in this story. So verse 45, here we go. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. Now if you go back to verse 44... It seems kind of strange that this would, they would say that they welcomed him. They were supposed to dishonor him according to verse 44, right? A prophet has no honor in his town. So, so why are they welcoming him? Well, the answer here to the welcome, the reception, is, is not exactly what it may look like on the outside. This isn't, this is really just an interest in his signs and his, in his wonders. This isn't something new. We saw this earlier in John chapter 2, um, where Jesus says this. He said, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, So they believed, John said here, but it wasn't the kind of faith that Jesus really accepted. There was simply excitement in his miracles. It's, it's, it's not really what they pointed to as him actually being the Son of God, actually being the Messiah, actually being the Savior of the world, which is what the Samaritans actually saw, even though they didn't see any of the miracles. Right? And so the Galileans here, they welcomed him, yes, but, but it says... They did this because they had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they had gone to the feast. So they welcomed him because they saw his power in Jerusalem. And so Jesus is coming to these very people um, knowing that this is their attitude. And so John, John mentions that Jesus is coming to Canaan in verse 46 because he wants to draw back our attention that that's the place where the very first sign was done by Jesus, the very first sign done in Galilee where he turned the water back into wine. Um, and so they desired Jesus to be the miracle worker. Um, so verse 46, So he came again to Canaan and Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to ask him and to come over to heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And so Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonder, you will not believe. What's interesting here, I think, is as Jesus is talking to this man, he doesn't just talk to this man specifically, he addresses the whole crowd. Jesus says, unless you, plural, see signs and wonders, you, plural again, will not believe. And so he's, he's talking explicitly to all of them that are there. And he says, you're basically saying, he's saying you're, you're sign seekers, you're worshiping wonders, you believe, but your belief is like those folks that are in Jerusalem, like we talked about in John chapter 2. It not, it's not really belief in me that honors me. Basically, you desire the things I can do, not myself. And as I thought about this idea of desiring the things that, that Jesus does instead of who he is, I wonder if that's not an indictment on us at times. That we sometimes become lovers of Jesus' power, but not really lovers of Jesus as a person. You see, an unbelieving person loves to see a miracle. Uh, We love to see someone who has a health need get it fixed. But that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I've had for sin, I want to come for sin to forgive it, to give you power to live. And so unbelievers don't really love God, they actually want to use God. And as I thought about this, the truth is that even after we come to Jesus, we often at times still live in unbelief. And we want to use God rather than love God at times. And so as I thought about this, what are some ways that this works out in our life? That what are some results of loving Jesus' power more than loving Jesus himself? What do you, how do you think that would work out in your life? Some ways of loving Jesus' power rather than loving Jesus himself. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's good. It's good. How else? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, we, we celebrate his, his acts rather than him himself. Yeah, that's good. I think that often comes out in the things that he gives us with work or whatever that may be, and relationships or or all those pieces. Yeah, yeah, good. How else? Yeah, I think that plays out in our prayers often, doesn't it? We're just continually ask, 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 but we're not actually seeking Him and loving Him in the midst of that. We just want to really use Him as a tool in many ways. Yeah, the God that fixes all of the stuff that we want changed in our life. Yeah, good, good. Yeah. Any other ways? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think oftentimes we, we can turn those things into duty, right? And if I do my Christian life and if I do my, my the way discipleship is supposed to look, then I will get X. Yeah. yeah <laughs> rather than this is something that we actually get to do because of what He's done for us. Yeah. yeah it's a big shift, but it, it may look similar, but it's a shift in, in the heart. Yeah, yeah. Sean? I, I can find myself a We have words of miracles, but most of them, salvation and just words. Yeah, we can't separate his his manhood from, from him being divine, but there are pieces that we learn from him and, and God teaches us in the midst of that as we look at his as him walking here on this earth for sure. Yeah, yeah, good. Jeff. But oftentimes like when that doesn't get followed Yeah, like well yeah, I but um but the gift is more. Yeah, so it's a constant like in the past few years. Yeah. Yeah, both both personally and then also corporately. So we think about as a church, like what does this this look like here or there? Yeah, I think it's easy for us to like look at them and say, well, you know, they're just worshiping like some special big sign that he healed somebody or changed water into wine. But I think as we actually play this out in our lives, we do this often. We do this very often where we're sign seekers and we're seeking the things of Jesus rather than Jesus himself. So I want to go on and and, because Jesus makes this, comment to uh, in verse 49 um, to the official and, and actually all those that were listening um, and this is how the official responds in verse 49 the official said to him sir come down before my child dies and jesus said to him go your son will live and the man believed the word that jesus spoke to him and he went on his way did you catch it this is key because this is the same thing that we saw in samaria he believed the words of jesus He believed who Jesus was without seeing the signs or the effects of the power in the situation. He saw something more than just a miracle worker when Jesus spoke. And the man obeys without question, which really is the way um, we need to respond as well. That we will believe who Jesus is, what he's done and who we are in light of that now. What he says about us and who, what our new identity is despite not seeing the results in our life. Or despite not seeing the things that we want him to provide for us, whether that's a home or a job or a better relationship or whatever it may be, that we would love and that we would see Jesus despite those other things. In verse 51, it goes on. He says, As he was going down, his servants met him, and he told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him.' The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he believed, and he himself believed in all of his household. And this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he came from Judea to Galilee. So Jesus doesn't have to give this man a gift. But the next day, we see there's confirmation uh, that very hour that Jesus spoke the words that his son was going to be healed his son is healed. And so there's confirmation. This man's faith is really reconfirmed here, right? And his whole household believes, it says, that the official really basically goes back and tells all the people in his home, his whole family, and they become believers in Jesus as well. And so he he turns from just a believer himself to to basically a carrier of God's Word, a missionary to his own family. And as we read the story, what, what John is doing is he's revealing to us the greatness of Christ. See the boy was dying of a fever, and Jesus has the power to heal him with merely a word. He just says, Go and your son will live. That's all he says. And at that one word, the boy's body has changed. The boy was fifteen miles away at this point, but it could have been fifteen thousand miles away. It didn't matter. When Jesus spoke, he has authority and there's there's no spatial limitations to his power. The healing is immediate. And in verse 52 and 53, it says that the very moment that Jesus spoke, it was done. Which, which really shouldn't surprise us at all. This isn't something new that John is bringing up. If you go back to the very first verse in this book, we see that Jesus is the living Word of God. That He has all authority to speak. Listen, verse, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him not anything was made. And in him was life and the life was the light of men. See again he's confirming this truth of the story that Jesus is God. That Jesus is all powerful. That his words are the gift of life. That he is the one who creates life and he restores life just through his words. But Jesus isn't just powerful. He doesn't just have Authority here. We also see that in the story, Jesus is actually very gracious. Jesus heals this child. He gives the free gift of healing to this man, to his family, um, to this child, to, to really to a man and a, and a family that he's never met before. Jesus has never met this man before, and most likely, this man has attachments to the wicked court of Herod Antipas. That's, that's probably who was an official here. Official here actually means royal official. And Herod was a ruler at the time. So so this man is not somebody that's squeaky clean. He's not someone who has lived in a good life in, in the Christian terms. He's not a do-gooder. He was on the outside. He was on the other side of the table, as it were. He's a man that really lived outside of God's laws, probably. And in other words, Jesus decides to heal this boy of a man he doesn't know, who a man who's not... You know, walking the right way, and it's completely grace. Because he's not looking at someone's merit or what they deserved or what they didn't deserve. It's about a free, gracious gift that he decides to give. And why does he do that? Why would Jesus do that with his family? So that they would see his glory. So that we would see his boy, so that a dying boy would be healed with a word over distance, over time, all at once, so that many would believe. It said its whole household believed. You see, Jesus' grace and Jesus' glory is never just for one thing. It wasn't just for this little boy's health. That wasn't his grace. Is way bigger than that. His grace is that his, his Jesus' grace was on display so that the hearts of many would believe, so that they would all see that he's actually the one that can give life, that he can heal sickness, that can, he can heal disease and, and sin that leads to death. And so Jesus is telling us at this point, he's telling us that in this one act of me healing this, this, this little boy, that I'm both gracious and I'm powerful, and I'm actually the one who can heal the great sickness and your great disease in your heart. Say, so Jesus is saying, look at my glory. Don't get stuck on the things that I can do. Look at who I am. See me as the God of the universe, the one who's come to save, to rescue, the one who's actually come for those who actually are sick and actually in need of me. Those who actually see their need of me. And I have, can I say this is really good news. Because this is what Jesus is saying to, to us today. He's saying, look at me. See me. See my glory. What I can do is great. But I'm even better than that. I'm better than my acts. I'm, better than, 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 I'm, I'm even better than my grace. Worship me not for the results of my power, but worship me because I'm worthy of worship. And so I th- this, is what, this is what John is revealing to us, and this is what Jesus is saying to us. Look at me. Look at my glory. And I, and I think John understands that sometimes we can miss things, and, or sometimes we are skeptical and say, oh, well, maybe that was just one instance. And so for good measure, he gives us a second story here. Because remember, John is writing this book to prove who Jesus is. And so he doesn't just tell stories in chronological order of Jesus' life. He bounces around and puts stories together and places them together so that we would see the same truth of who Jesus is. And so he puts another story of healing so that we would see what he wants to communicate about Jesus. And so there's lots of things that take place between these two stories. In um, and, and verse 1 of chapter 5, a very similar story but reveals some more depth and what Jesus is doing and what his healing actually reveals about himself and why he should be worshipped. Um, so verse 1 of chapter 5. After this there was a feast of Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now in their Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda. Which had five roofed colonnades. In these lay multitudes of invalid, blind, lame and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been there for a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, going another steps down before me. So just for reference, this pool here where this man was lying is a pool where it's a place where people would come for healing. We're not sure if it was some type of hot spring or, or what it was, but it's some type of ancient spa. That they would use for healing, and and some scholars say that many people believed that when the water would stir up, when it would bubble or or whatever it was, that there was actually an angel that touched it, and the first one that got into the water would get healed. So you can kind of imagine this like this mad dash when like some bubble comes up and like people are like jumping in like from five colonnades, like I'm, I'm going from the third floor, right? Like I can kind of imagine this whole thing, and this man had been there for a long, long time, and I can kind of see that. Basically, he's given up. He's like, "There's no way I'm going to beat the mad rush. There's no way I'm not even going to try anymore." Probably when, when he first got there, his family was with him, or or maybe some people were there to help him. But but he's probably been he's been there for a long time. He's given up. He's abandoned there, and he's lying on the ground, and may, maybe he's praying. Maybe he's he's asking, and and Jesus comes, and Jesus sees him, and Jesus knows his story. And what's interesting is, is this guy doesn't have any idea who Jesus is. The royal official knew who Jesus was, and he comes and asks him for help. But this guy is just looking for anybody who can drop him in the pool. And we'll see in a second, even after he's healed, he has no idea who heals him. He doesn't even know who Jesus is until Jesus later on comes in his second interaction with this man and and tells him who he is. And so I want to go on in verse 8. It says this, And Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered him, The man who healed me that said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Who is this man who said, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. And afterward Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. So, so in many ways, Jesus does this healing in secret. The guy doesn't know who he is, none of the leaders were around, no crowd was following Jesus around, and maybe it was a few disciples that were, that were with Jesus at this time, which, which really kind of begs the question is, is, what was Jesus revealing about himself in this healing? Why, why even do it in the first place? We see he's powerful because he just says it again, and the man's healed. But the good news is that Jesus doesn't just do random acts of kindness, He's purposeful in all that he does and he says. And so none of Jesus' physical miracles are actually an end into themselves. They all point to something more about himself, about the kingdom of a God, about the spiritual, about the, the moral transformation that he's doing rather than actual the physical transformation of the miracle itself. So what is Jesus telling us? Well, the answer is this in verse 14. It says this, Afterwards Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. In other words, I've sought you out to tell you the point of why I healed you. So Jesus finds this man in the temple later on. He says, I want to tell you why I healed you. I healed your body with the aim of healing your soul. I conquered your sickness in view of conquering your sin. I healed you for the sake, really, of holiness, is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying to this man, don't miss that your healing was the sign of holiness. I've come for that. I've come to restore sin, to fix that problem. In this statement, Jesus is pointing to the healing. He's he's not pointing to, to gratify sin seekers by doing this in the public eye, but to actually conquer sin. Jesus is saying, Look to me and turn from sin, which is really the same message that is revealed in the first story. Jesus doesn't just do this completely in the background. We see also this this part about the Sabbath going on, right? And so Jesus is teaching something about doing this on the Sabbath. We're going to talk about this more in depth next week as we get into this. But, but I want you to see what Jesus is making a statement about his divinity and about his relationship to God, the Father, in, in, in doing this on the Sabbath. And I want to skip ahead to verse 17 real quick. Because this is after the Jewish leaders find out that it was actually Jesus who heals him. Because the man comes back and tells them, right, after he meets with Jesus a second time, that he was actually the one that, that was that fixed the broken and restored him. Now he's walking again. And so they come to Jesus and they say, why'd you do this on the Sabbath? In verse 17, Jesus responds to this. He says, my father is working until now and I am working. So basically they're saying, Jesus, why are you doing this on the Sabbath? And Jesus said, my father is working and I'm working. Basically, the father and I created this perfect world, this paradise, and we rested That's what we did on the seventh day. We rested. Not because we were tired, but we rested to step back as if it were to enjoy a perfect display of our glory revealed in our creative handiwork. And that's what the Sabbath is really for. It's for restful focus and enjoyment of God. It's not just some time off work. And Jesus says, this is what I was doing, which by the way is another sign, another way of him saying, I am God and I'm worthy to be worshiped. Jesus is saying, My Father and I, we were Sabbathing, but sin entered the world. And through sin came sickness and death and calamity. And now, from that moment on, my Father and I have been working. We've been working again. We've been working in many ways that you don't understand. We're working to restore a Sabbath paradise to the universe. We've been working to overcome sin and sickness and death. And even the law that you're, you're complaining about now, that, that, that this man is healed, and you're complaining that he's walking around with his bed? I mean, that's just stupid in the first place, but I don't know why Jesus didn't smack him. But like... He's saying to this man, like, it's not about working on the Sabbath, it's part of working to conquer sin here. He's saying, he's saying I'm holding back the mysteries of, of, of unrighteousness to point you forward to Messiah, to the Savior who would come, who would perform the decisive act of restoration. The one who would actually bring transformation to the new heavens and to the new earth, so we could once again actually Sabbath. And so when I healed this man, I intentionally did it on the Sabbath. And I'm showing you something about myself. I'm showing you that I am God. What was happening at the pool of the Bethesda was that me and my father were revealing to the world what is actually coming that there's going to be a world where there's no sickness and where there's no death and where there's no sin. And my father has been working on it until now and I'm working on it still. And whether you see it or not, here's my response to your accusation about my Sabbath breaking. My father and I are one and we are working to create a new Sabbath again. And since sin and sickness entered the world, my Father has been working and I've been working to restore joy and wholeness to the entire earth. And that's what I'm doing and that's what I'm going to do in the coming months to come as well. Because the good news is that I am going to, I'm going to Jesus is saying, I'm going to deliver a decisive victory at the cross. And when I rise from the dead, I'm not only going to prove my power, I'm not only going to prove my grace, but I'm going to provide a way for healing for all mankind. I'm going to restore the sign seekers, those that are looking for just my, my power, and I'm going to, they're going to be revealed that I am the only one that's actually loving, that I'm the only one that's actually worth worshiping. And so Jesus is saying, look at me, not the act. Don't look at my power. Don't even look at my grace. All those things just reveal one thing, that I'm actually the one worth finding Sabbath rest in. And the good news is that Jesus is saying that to us today. He's saying, look at me. Find rest in me. Don't rest in what I can provide for you. Rest in me. Rest because I'm the one that's actually worthy of worship. I'm the one that's going to come back and, and completely restore and redeem this earth. And when I return, Jesus says to us that he's going he's to he's return, he's going to usher in that kingdom and there's going to be no more sickness, there's going to be no more death, there's going to be no more sin, there's going to be all of these things because he's the ultimate healer of both the physical and the spiritual. And so Jesus is saying to us as he's looking through these stories, he's saying, Jesus is saying, find your rest in me. Celebrate me. That's what we talked about at the very beginning, that what we we celebrate is what people will gravitate towards. And so as you think about Jesus, don't just celebrate the acts of Jesus before other people. Celebrate Jesus in the midst of those things. Celebrate who he is regardless of what's going on, that he is powerful, that he's gracious, but all those things actually reveal his great glory, that he's the one that's actually worth worshiping we're going to go to the communion table and we're going to be reminded of that as we go to the table, what we do, we, we break the bread, we dip it in the cup and, and we're reminded that Jesus actually is the God of the universe, that he is actually worth worshiping, that he is worth loving, that he is the one that, that all of those other things pale in comparison to. You, see, you realize that Jesus' grace pales in comparison to himself. That's a crazy thought. Because we often talk about Jesus' grace. It pales in comparison to worshiping Him. We can't separate those things from Him. That's who He is as part of it. But but He wants us to worship Himself, not just His acts and not just His power. And so as we go to the table, we'll be re- reminded of that, that we're people of great need, that we're people that need Jesus. And so that, that as we dip that cup, we're reminded of His good news to us. So I want to pray, and then we'll sing some songs. And as we do that, you can go to the table with those around you and, and remind each other of just how great Jesus is, how great God is to us, that he, he would send Jesus and that he would give us his spirit to live a new life now, and that as the Father, he continues to pursue us and remind us that he loves us and calls us to his own. Our Father, we thank you that, that we get to live a new life. We thank you that you love us and that you call us to your family. Lord, we thank you that you are better than anything you can provide for us. Lord, we know that you are the great provider and you don't just say, I'm great and leave us alone, but you do provide as well. And that you are in control and that you love us and you guide us. Lord, I pray that you would renew afresh for us just our love for you. Pray that we would worship you uh, both in spirit and in truth. Pray that we would love you for who you are. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.